Alright, that is truly what we are singing about today and learning about as God of our fathers who never changes. I want you to do something on your way back to your seats. I want you to turn around to someone and tell them, what is the longest you've ever waited for something? Alright, there you go. All right, well, let's get started here. <laughs> we all love to wait a long time for things, huh? See, yeah, yes. Well, we are, uh, we are doing this series uh, called God of Our Fathers. We're, we're studying through these stories in the book of Genesis. And one of the themes that we kind of find that pops up is early on in this story that there's a lot of waiting that goes on sometimes for them. And one of the things that we want to learn through this series is that we're not learning about uh, the forefathers of faith, we want to learn about the God of these forefathers because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we will find that uh, many of their struggles and the things that they went through and the way they processed and worked through life is very much like uh, you and like me often. And so we can relate to them, and uh, that's why we're going through this series here. I want to start off with a question for you. Don't answer it out loud. Just think of it in your head. But what currently is the biggest challenge you're facing in your life? Or, and or, what is something that you are waiting to find out how it ends? You just want to know how this ends, and you're waiting to find out, and you just feel like it's a test of patience day after day. And those thoughts, those questions, I want you to keep those in mind today, because when we study through this, this series, and we're looking at the God of our fathers, and we're going to look in the life of Abraham again today, and we see that he was facing some challenges, and he was waiting to see if one of God's promises, how it was going to end. And we see that often he thought, okay, I think I got this now. Let me take it under control. And so today we're going to look at this idea, and, and, and what does it mean for us today to have faith, and to believe in God and who he says he is and in his promises. Uh, I, I was thinking a little bit about this, and I, I think faith is often like fishing. Anyone like to fish here in here? Yeah, there's some people who like to fish. Okay, I don't like to fish. I like to catch. But, um, but I love going catching. It's a, it's a lot of fun. But the fishing part is, uh, this comedian Stephen Wright once said that there's a fine line between fishing and standing on the shore like an idiot. But... Um, for me, sometimes that's how I feel, but uh, recently I went out every year, I take one of my sons, we go deep sea fishing for tuna, and, and uh, it can be, when we start off the day, we do this basically a one-day trip, um, and they start off, and the captain says, this trip is called a high-risk, high-reward trip. We're going to drive and drive and drive today, and we're going to hope to find a school of tuna, but we might not. And if we don't, it will be a nice 12 to 15 to 16 hour boat ride. And that is 
What? That's how it is. See, that's what I'm saying. I don't like the fishing. I like the catching part. But so it can be a, a long, expensive boat ride around throughout the uh, waters outside of San Diego and Mexico. Or it could be a really fun day. But faith is often, sometimes to me, feels like fishing. It feels like, well, we think there's a reasonable chance that this is going to turn out a certain way. But I'm just kind of going along for the ride and hoping that it comes out a certain way. Now, how would faith change or how would fishing change if I start off the day and instead of the captain saying, this is high risk, high reward, he started off and said, I will promise you, I guarantee you, today you will catch a tuna. Today you will, guaranteed, no matter what. Trust me on that. How would that change how that day looked when you went out? Instead of the captain saying, sorry, don't blame me if you don't catch anything. We're trying. But if we knew, we would be guaranteed to catch a fish that day. How would it be? You'd be two, three hours in and thinking, it's okay because the promise has been given to me that this will work out. Four, five, six hours in. It's okay, because the captain still promised me. I know it's lunchtime now, but he promised it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. How would that change things? Maybe by 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, you might start thinking, uh, I know the captain said he promised, but we have to turn around and go home pretty soon. What's this going to be like? And what if at 2 o'clock he came down and said, I just want to reiterate my promise to you. You will catch a fish today. It's okay. I know you might not think so right now, but it's going to happen. You'd have a little shot in the arm. Like, okay, he said it will. How would that change for you? As we look at these stories of faith, we're going to read stories, and, and we've been exploring through the story of a guy named Abraham. And as we look at his life, we see that God made a promise to him. Now, unlike Abraham, I've never had God sit down with me and say, let me map out what's going to happen in your life. I wish that happened, but I haven't had that. But Abraham had some specific promises. For you and for me, we have to find our promises based on the character of God, who he is, and who, the promises that are in general that he gives for his people. And we have to learn to trust those. But we want to explore what was Abraham doing when he, his faith was like being on that fishing trip. When the captain promised him it's going to work out a certain way, but the day was getting longer and longer. And how did he wrestle with that? And we want to find some truth in there for us today. Now, before we get to that, if you have not been with us the last couple of weeks, or if you have, either way, I want to get you up to speed in the story. Now, we are in the book of Genesis, and the book of Genesis, we're studying, basically, here's what's happening, is, is we see God created the world, and, and there was this fall that we call sin, and so mankind now is in this essentially struggle with one another, struggle with God. There's a conflict in our relationships as a result of our wanting to do things our way, not, not the way that our creator God has designed things. Now, then God initiates this plan to say, I, his heart for creation has from the beginning been one of love and of grace. Please do not mistake and think, if you're familiar with scripture, or maybe you grew up around church and you think there's an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. The New Testament God is Jesus and grace and compassion and forgiveness, but the Old Testament God is, is wrath and killing and all this. God has always been the same, and he's always been a God of mercy and compassion and grace. His desire is to draw and redeem and restore his creation, people back into friendship with him. So he initiates this plan from the beginning to have this, to redeem creation, to bring us back into relationship with him. And he chooses to do this by selecting one person named, at the time his name was Abram, 
And he lived in what we would consider modern-day Iraq. And he calls him and he says, Abram, I want you to leave your country, leave everything behind, and begin a new journey. Go to the place where I tell you, and I'm going to create a new nation out of you. And through you, the, all the world will be blessed. And eventually, there will be a Messiah figure. It will be God in flesh who will come and restore creation once and for all. Give us hope once and for all. And so the story now is we are exploring through what it looked like when God called Abram and he began this new life and this new journey in a new land as the beginning of a new nation. Now part of the story that we need to know is that Abram and his wife did not have any kids of their own. It's really hard to create a new nation and having descendants and being a strong family without any kids. And so the struggle here was what he was going through. Now, I want to just answer one quick question before we move on. Some people want to say, a question I've heard before is, why does God call one person or one nation? What's the idea of calling this family or even this idea of, of a chosen people? Why would God even do that if he loves all people? Well, there's a qu- few quick thoughts. We don't have a chance to explain all this in deep, in depth today, but I just want you to have a few thoughts because it helps. First of all, one of the reasons he calls one family is he wants to demonstrate the character of God to the rest of the world. He calls a family through whom that family he teaches and instructs. Why he gives the law, the moral law, is is intended to give them a picture of this is who God is. And so that one family that becomes a nation was intended to give a picture to the rest of creation of who God the creator is, his character, his nature. Why we now, as as followers of Christ, are part of this, grafted into this nation, we have the life of Christ to be our example of what that looks like. And so we actually are what God looks like to the world. When they look at us, they should have a glimpse of who God is, his character and his ways. I know, it's scary sometimes, but that's okay. He can work through our mess. I think of it this way, um, when you have kids, often I tell my kids, the reason we had you is so you do the dishes and mow the lawn and stuff like that. And, and that's partly true, but the other part of it, when you have kids, is that y- your kids represent your family. And the way your kids interact in the world is a representation of who you are and your family. And, and so I know as parents you say like, no, come on, let's not go there right now. But, but that is part of the deal. And, and, but the idea is, with our kids, they are learning what the family looks like by watching us, by learning our norms and our ways. And the way they go out into the world represents who we are. I remember when um, one of our kids was pretty young. Well, they were all young at the time. And um, I was driving in the car one day, and one of them, he was about three years old, was in the back seat. And a car cut us off. And I went, whoa, got cut off. And in the back, I hear the three-year-old say, idiot. (laughs) He learned that from someone. Now, I'm not going to say anything, but... um, my person I'm married to is one who often drove this person around. So I'm not, not pointing fingers, I'm not casting blame, but, but our kids represent who we are, what we see. That's the picture of what it's, supposed to, what it's supposed to be in the family of God. Why God calls one family to himself is we represent his character to the world. Another thought is this, that we are the conduit of blessing for all the families of the earth. God calls a people to himself and says, I will bless you, but through you, you be a blessing to the world. You see, the idea of being a chosen people in in scripture was not so that they were elite, special, or better than anyone else. It was because God chose to use 
these people called into a relationship with him to be a blessing to others. As followers of Jesus today, we are not special or better than anyone else in the world. We have a position now, and I would say a responsibility, to be a blessing to the rest of the world. The good news that we are saved from our sins is good news for us. The good news that we can discover life in Jesus Christ is good news for us. But that good news is also good news if we truly embrace it and it changes how we live. That good news is good news for everyone we interact with, whether they believe or not. Because when lives are transformed and changed by Jesus Christ, that's good news for everybody. Because we're a conduit, a blessing. And the final thought is this. God calls one nation to bring the ultimate answer to the shortcomings of mankind. And that is Jesus. And instead of just having this story where one day this random person shows up from who knows, wandering out in the desert with no history, no, and, and comes on the scene, if the Messiah came from nowhere, the story would be inconsistent. And people would say, well, who are you? Just some guru wandering through the mountains that now you have hope for the world. But through this nation, there was prophecies that were given. There was consistency. And, and there was these predictions that the Messiah would be born and, and as specific as into a town of Bethlehem and, and to a, a young woman, a virgin woman. And all these things were part of the story. And if it was just some random person out of many nations who just showed up and said, I'm your savior, the story would be incomplete. And so he chooses one nation to do this because that was his way of bringing the Messiah. So those are just a couple of thoughts. You can always dive deeper and love to dialogue with you more on that. And if you ever have a question about why would God call a people to represent him. So those are a few thoughts that we have. So now let's get into the story again today. God called Abraham to begin this new nation. And he calls him out of the land. He promised that he will one day have a child of his own. One thing that we learned last week is God reiterated the promise to him, but Abraham was getting impatient. At this time, Scripture says he was about 85 years old, and he, according to ancient Near Eastern custom, his wife Sarah said, hey, you know what? We're getting old. The best way to do this is here is my maid. She's an Egyptian. Have your heir through her, and so he did. But that wasn't God's plan. And uh, a child was born named Ishmael, and God said, I will bless this child, I will be with him, I will make him strong and great, but this was not my plan for you, Abram. Now, if, it were, if I were God, and this is how the story would, went, I would say, okay, let me start over with someone new. You're not my guy. But God said, I'm going to work with this. I'm going to work with you. I still want to promise you, through you and Sarah, you will have an heir. So that is a story that we're going to pick up here today, and I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. If you're new to scripture, it's right near the beginning, the very first book in the Bible. We're going to be in chapter 18 and 17 today, but we want to start in 18, and I'll explain why in just a moment. But before we get into this, uh, pray with me. God, we thank you again for this time. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you that you love us. I thank you for the story that you give us promises. You promise that you will be true to who you are, and that you'll walk with us, you'll be with us. This morning, God, we believe that you're present, but we, we want to experience your presence. We need you to speak to us here today. And so I ask that my words would be yours, and we give this time now to you. In your name, amen. So chapter 18 is where we'll pick it up. Now, chapter 18, and the reason I said 17 as well, is 17 and 18 are very similar stories. Some scholars might think that 17 is kind of a double click on chapter 18. It could be an expanded version, or it could be two separate stories that happened very close to the same time, 
but there's a lot of similarities that's happening in these. It's not uncommon, especially in the book of Genesis, you have in the creation account that there's two different accounts. They're not different. One's a double click. It's a, here's actually more details. But so we want to start off in chapter 18. Now at this point, Abram still has not had a child of his own through his wife, Sarah. His name was just changed to Abraham, which means father of nations. Could you imagine that? If God says, hey, I'm giving you a new name, it's Abraham, it means father of many nations. And you say, well, uh, remember, you promised a kid. He changed his wife, Sarah, uh, her name to Sarah, which meant princess. Through her, you will have kings. She says, well, I don't have any kids. This doesn't make much sense. But this is what's happened to this point. Now, chapter 18 says this, The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting in the tent in the heat of the day, well, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing opposite to him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. And he said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought to wash your feet and rest yourselves under this tree. I will bring you a piece of bread that you may go refresh yourselves, and after that you may go on on your journey, since you have visited your servant. And they said, So do as you have said. And Abraham hurried into his tent to Sarah and said, quickly, prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread and cakes. So this is not modern day kind of like, hey, just hang out really quick. Let me get you some food. Go in there and like, hey, can you break, bake a loaf of bread really quick? You know, it's a different culture, right? So he says, go make some bread. And then Abraham ran out to his herd. He took a tender choice of calf, gave it to his servant, and hurried to prepare it. He took curds and milk in the calf, and he prepared and placed it before them, and they were standing with him under the tree as they ate. So you can see here, what we have is a picture of, there's this appearance, there's three people who show up. Now the story begins and says the Lord appeared to Abraham. And then the very next thing, Abraham says, my Lord, and he uses this, he's addressing not just sir, but he's addressing God the creator. So there's a unique thing that's happening in this story here that often we refer to this as the angel of the Lord is appearing to Abraham. I've never had an angel of the Lord appear to me. Some scholars believe that the angel of the Lord is this idea of the pre-incarnate Christ, which means that if we believe that God has always existed in a Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit relationship, that Jesus existed before he entered the scene as a human being. Uh, according to scripture, he's always existed from the beginning of time. Just Jesus is the name given when he entered in as man. So some scholars believe that this is a, a, an appearance of Christ appearing in, in some sort of angel of the Lord. I don't know what that looks like. Apparently it looks like people as he shows up. Now what's interesting here is Abraham knew who this was. We don't know why he knows. I don't know if I stood in the presence of the Lord, if you just know. <laughs> Seems like perhaps you would. I tend to believe that this is not the first time that this has happened to Abraham. I even think, and this is not biblical, this is just Ryan thinking. Could it be that when God originally called Abraham and said, I want you to leave your land, your family, leave everything behind and begin a new nation, I have a promise for you, that there was the same type of appearance? Could be, I don't know. We don't know. But Abraham recognized it. And then he runs, and, and, and yes, he, he shows great ancient Near Eastern hospitality. And one of the reasons you would do that anytime you have visitors is because eating together and being hospitable was a sign of a peace treaty. And so when you're nomadic, and Abraham at this time was nomadic, and you have visitors or strangers passing through, you would want to be in their good favor just in case. And so hospitality was a big deal. 
And so he says, hey, we want you to eat here. We want you to be refreshed. We want you to be blessed with this. So come on in, relax. And it was a symbol of a peace treaty. And I don't know if Abraham knew at that time or later he would realize that this certainly was a treaty that God was coming to. He was coming in peace and bringing good words for him. So he starts off and he says, so, so they make all of this food and they sit down to eat. Now the, the angel of the Lord gets right down to business in verse 9. And he said, where is Sarah, your wife? And he says, well, she's, she's in the tent. And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, again, some context here. Abraham at this time, according to the story, is 99 years old and Sarah is 90. Okay? So you can imagine what this, these words kind of sound like at that point. I'll be back in a year from now and she will have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. And now Abraham and Sarah, oh yeah, okay. Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I've become so old, shall I have the pleasure in my Lord being so old also? In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, when it describes the story, it says that Sarah had faith that she would one day have a child, even though her husband was as good as dead. So she's hearing this story, and she laughs and says, hey, I'm 90, but my man is 99 years old. And this is, I mean, this is before the drug companies. This is before Pfizer, you know. So this is like, what is going on? Are you serious? There, it, I mean, it takes two to make things go right here, angel of the Lord. This is, I'm not so sure this story is going to happen. There's a lot of things that would have to happen for that to be true. And so she laughs. Shall I indeed bear a child when I'm so old? And in verse 14, is anything, the angel of the Lord says, is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah, when she heard that, denied it, said, no, I, I didn't laugh. For she was afraid, and the angel said, no, you did laugh. And that's just the end of the story right there. That's it. I love it. No, you did. It's all right. <laughs> Now, if we were to double-click on this story, this either, cha to chapter 17, this is either an expansion of some more details, or this happened separately, but very close proximity. In chapter 17, it begins and says, Abraham was 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to him, and, and gives this whole idea to say, I'm the Lord God Almighty. I want to remind you that I am going to bless you, make you the father of nations, and I'm going to do this thing. Even in your old age, I am going to work in your life. Now, in verse 15 of chapter 17, God said for, to Abraham, and he just changed, this is when he changes his name too, by the way. He, he says, you're the father of nations. And then in verse 15, I want you to get all the story here. As for Sari, your wife, you will not call her Sari, but call her Sarah, that will be your name. I will bless her, and indeed, I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Now get this, this is Abraham's response. Abraham fell on his face and laughed in his heart. And he said, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to the Lord God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Because at this time, he already had one son through his uh, maid, Hagar. His name was Ishmael. Ishmael was about 13 years old. And he said, God, 
I appreciate it. I love, thank you for thinking of me, but we already have Ishmael. He's a good boy. I like him. Just that he, may, just use Ishmael. It's cool. It's all right. I'm 99. You don't have to do this, Lord. It's fine. Let Ishmael live before you. But God said, no, Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you will call his name Isaac, which, by the way, in Hebrew, Isaac means laughter. <laughs> and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you, and behold, I will bless him. I will make him fruitful and multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. You see, so even here, Abraham is saying, I have a better, God, I get it, it's okay, I have a better way, let's just use Ishmael, it's fine. And God said, that wasn't my plan, and I'm not changing my plan. But as for Ishmael, I will bless him, I will take care of him, he'll become a great nation. I'm going to work through him too. And we're going to get back to that in just a moment. So when we hear this story now, what is it that we learn about God? This is the question that we need to have when we read these stories. So what are we learning about God in this? The first thing that we learn about God in this story is this, that he is faithful. That he is faithful. He made a promise to Abraham. He even made a covenant last week that we looked at and, and put these animals on the ground and, and had this appearance walk through them as a way of making a covenant, a one-way covenant, saying, I promise I will do this for you, and if I don't, you can cut me in half. God made that promise to Abraham. He said, I will be faithful to my word. And so God is saying, I am not going to go back on my word. I am faithful. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful. He doesn't change. We learn that about him. Even when we leave his plan, he remains the same. Even when we make a mess of things, our God does not change. Abraham and Sarah last week... We looked at was 13 years before when they said, let's, let's just here, try, try our maid. And then Ishmael was born. Not God's plan, original plan. Abraham, in a way, made a mess of things, but he said, no, I still want to do something with you and with Sarah. But he is faithful. And one thing I love about this, too, is that God has this great love for Ishmael and his descendants. That sounds contrary to maybe what some of you have heard. Ishmael is known as the father of the Arab nations. Don't, for a moment, mistake that God hates any of those nations. He does not hate them. He loves them. They are traced their lineage back to Abraham, the father of the nations. Is there a reason why they've been blessed and strong for so many years? Yeah. Is there animosity from time to time between Israel and some of the Arab nations? Yes, there is. Would that not be there if this never happened? I don't know. There is. But God has a heart and wants to restore and redeem them into friendship and relationship with him. One of my good friends of mine is a Palestinian Christian. When we lived in the Middle East, we got to be um, great family friends with them. And I love that this person who is a descendant of Ishmael, an Arab descendant of Ishmael who's a follower of Jesus Christ, has a ministry now called Musalaha. It's an Arabic, Arabic word that means reconciliation. And his ministry is trying to reconcile Israeli Jews and Israeli Muslims and bring them back and say, we there's a better way forward than the way we have been going. 
And he does summer camps for the youth out in the desert to bring um, understanding, empathy, and reconciliation between these very polarized groups. This is someone who God is saying, this person is in a long line of people who are followers of Jesus, and, and some have gone the other way, but he is in this line, and I can use him to bring out good. You see, when our plans veer from God's and we make a mess of things, he has a way of making things right. Beauty can rise from the ashes, and God has a way of taking beauty out of ashes. The mistakes you have made in your life, don't for a moment think that God is saying, okay, now what am I going to do? That's not the way I saw this going. But he looks at you and says, okay, you've made a mess of things. Things might be a little harder than they had to be, but let me work in this situation because I can and I'm going to. Because our God doesn't change. He is faithful. He doesn't change when we are faithless. The other thing that we learn is he is powerful. I believe one of the things that he wants to, us to know in this story, why did he wait till Abraham was 99? He wanted this to be impossible. He wanted people to realize that this is an impossible thing, that a 99-year-old and a 90-year-old would have a child and be around long enough to see him become a great nation. But God wanted them to know that his power goes beyond what makes sense. Nothing is impossible for our Lord. Nothing is too difficult for him, as it says in chapter 18, verse 14. God wanted us to know that, hey, Abraham, you're about to embark on a journey and your descendants are going to go through a journey that is going to seem impossible. He, in fact, he told them, you're going to spend 400 years in slavery. And until that ends, and that would be the end of the Exodus, you're going to go through this, but I will deliver you out of the hands of the Egyptians. Be ready, Abraham, because your life and your descendants are going to go through some tough times. But I want you to know from the very beginning that I am powerful. And nothing is too difficult for me. How many of you this morning need to hear that nothing is too difficult for God? And you, you come here this morning and you think, I really could use him to show up, but I'm not sure he can handle this one. But our God is reminding us here today that nothing is too difficult for the Lord. Look at the person next to you and tell them, nothing is too difficult for the Lord. Go ahead, be, be embarrassed, just say it. We need to hear that this morning. We need to hear that. So we learn that God is faithful and we learn that he is powerful. Now what do we learn about ourselves in this story? I want to I invite you to turn with me over to the book of Mark. This is on the other side of, this, of the Bible. Kind of towards the end. About three quarters, maybe a little bit more. In the book of Mark, this is where Jesus is roaming around earth and teaching people his ways. And in chapter 9 of, of Mark, there's this interesting experience that begins in verse 20. And, and there's, this, there's this man, he brings his son who has some sort of, we don't know what it is, they, they call it a spirit or a demon or apple, we don't know what it was, but something he struggled with from birth. And he said, they brought this boy to Jesus, and when Jesus saw him, immediately the spirit threw the boy into convulsion, and falling on the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening? And he said, from childhood. It has often thrown him both into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help. And Jesus said to him, if you can, <laughs> if you can. And he said, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said this, I do believe 
but help my unbelief. And then Jesus heals this boy. So what do we learn about us? See, this one thing I like about this story, this is about 2,000 years after the Abraham story. And I believe what's happening in the Abraham and Sarah story is they are saying, God, I, we believe, but help us with our unbelief. We believe you can do this, but we're not sure we believe you are going to do it. We, we do believe, but we have these areas of life of unbelief. How many of you this morning say, well, I believe in God. I believe he's powerful. I believe he's faithful, but I'm struggling to believe about this. And so what do we learn about ourselves? We learn a few things that faith is more than just hope. See, Jesus says, if I can, are you just hoping this might work out? God's looking at Abraham and Sarah and saying, are you just hoping? Faith is more than hope. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's an assurance. We learn through scripture and we say, God, we want assurance that who you are and your promises are true. These are things we can hope in, but they're not just blank hope. It's assurance of things we hope in. Faith is more than just saying, God, I hope it works out. Hope you're good enough. Hope you're strong enough. Hope you care about my family members who don't know you. Hope you care about my spouse who's struggling with an addiction. I hope you care about my marriage that's on the rocks. I hope you care about my kids who are in trouble. I hope you care about my parents who are struggling with their hope. I hope you do. But faith is more than hope. Faith is rooted in who God is. Jesus reminds him and says, if you can, I'm all powerful. Anything is possible. Faith is more than hope. It's grounded in who Christ is, who God is. Why do we like to study scripture here? Because we keep learning about his ways and his character. We find things that we can put our hope in. Why do we want you journeying with other people and not going through your life of faith alone? Because you might just run into someone who has a story who says, I know what it feels like to have a marriage when you think it isn't going to make it. But trust me, God is strong and he's pulled us through. We find hope, we find concrete evidence and stories with other people. You might say, I know you feel desperate right now. There's work, it's hard to come by. I was there before. I cried out to God and said, would you ever show up? And so he always provided. See, when we journey with others, we start getting evidence for our faith. There's hope. That's not just blind. Faith is more than hope. The other thing we learn about these stories is that hope grows with, I mean, sorry, faith grows with practice. Do you realize this? Faith grows with practice. See, this guy who's talking to Jesus and Abraham who's talking to the angel of the Lord, they both are saying, okay, I believe you're powerful, but come on, I'm having trouble believing this. But the longer you follow Christ, the longer you journey, the longer you step out in faith, the more your faith can actually grow. It grows in practice. It's okay if you don't begin your faith journey with faith that moves mountains. Often we've said here that it's not actually the strength of your faith, but it's the strength of the thing in which you put your faith. Or in our case, it's the strength of our God in whom we put our faith. Our faith can grow. Faith grows that we find here. Abraham, we'll see next week, responded incredibly with faith to God's promises because his faith was growing. For us, it grows. You know, when I told you about this fishing store I went on, and I've been on this boat several times. You leave at 5.30 in the morning, and you get back somewhere between 5 and 8 at night. 
and you go on about 40 miles out into the ocean searching for tuna. And I've been on the boat before where I went all day. And it got to the point where I looked at my son and I said, hey, this is a very expensive boat ride today. I hope you enjoyed it. And one time we were coming back in and we were almost done with the day and, and we landed on one patch of tuna, one school, and we each caught like four fish in a matter of minutes. And so then the next time I went out, we were on a very long boat ride and I was telling people, it'll be okay, there's fish out here. Trust me, sometimes it takes a while and at the end of that boat ride, we caught some fish on the way in. And but see, I've been there before. Now this last time we went, we were on the boat and we left at 5.30 in the morning and by 10.30 uh, we had one fish in the boat, 51 people. By 12.30 we had one fish between 51 people. 2.30 we had one fish. I was telling the other people on the boat, saying like, I've, I've seen this before, it just takes one stop, it'll be okay. It'll be okay, trust me. There's fish out here, we'll find them. 4.30, this is 11 hours in. We had one fish on the boat, and we were heading back to San Diego. I was actually fishing at one of our stops, throwing my, our live bait in the water, and I was thinking, okay, God, sermon illustration noted. Let's catch some fish. Let's go. I'll use it. Fine. I'll use it. Let's make a cool ending, though. See, I've been on this boat before, and I know that it, there's still hope. Now, Captain said, you might not catch anything. He didn't play the role of God and didn't say, I guarantee you, you will. But at that point, when it's time to go home, you start to think, okay, a different lesson learned. It was a nice day. I met some new people. That was great. It's tough sometimes. Does your faith grow? Pastor Ken Dyke once said this, that faith is living out, or living as if, living your life as if you, what you believe is actually true. You see, if I really believed that there are fish out here, every time we stopped, I'll still keep fishing. I'm going to throw my bait in the water, saying, I know this can get better. If I didn't believe it, if I didn't think that it could get better, I would start telling everyone, like, this sucks. <laughs> this is terrible. I'm not doing this again. I'm not even going to fish anymore. Every time we stop, what's the point? There's one fish, 51 of us. And I guarantee you that person's not going to share. But faith is living your life as if what you believe is actually true. And so we keep walking out in faith. Do we believe that God is faithful? Do we believe that he can show up in our times of need? Do we believe that he sees us and knows that if you are generous with your time, your talents, your treasures, your, your finances to bless others, if you are generous, do we really believe that God will show up and still provide for us? You see, faith is living as if you, what you believe is actually true. I've been there. My family's been there through tough times when there wasn't much to give. We've been there where we were eating a lot more beans than meat. But we were committed to still being faithful because we kind of believed that God was going to be faithful to us and that he would provide. And guess what? We never missed a meal, even when we were generous. Never once. And you know what happened? Our faith grew. Because when we st stepped out on faith, we said, oh, it actually, God didn't leave us. He's still there. When we live, faith is living as if what you believe is actually true. We step out in faith. On our boat ride home, 
at 4.30, literally the 11th hour, we had a three-hour boat ride home from there, still in Mexico. Captain stopped one more time, said, yeah, let's try here. By 4.45, it was maybe 5 o'clock, it's about 20 minutes, we had 134 fish on the boat. And we had this happen with my son and his friend. In 20 minutes, <laughs> next time I go out on the boat, guess what? I'm going to wait till 4.30 before I lose hope. <laughs> I know, you're jealous. I am jealous too. <laughs> That's some pretty good fish. But see, our faith grows. Our faith grows. Those kids, next time they go out, are going to trust, right? They're going to say, there's hope. There's always hope. Let's take that off the screen, otherwise no one will listen to the end here. <laughs> Anyone want some ahi tuna? Talk to me afterwards. There's plenty. I want to invite the uh, worship team to make their way up. And as we end, the question for you as we started with is, what is a challenge that you're currently facing? What is something in your life that you are waiting to see how it will end? What is something that you're waiting for God show up on, or maybe something that you're struggling with. You're struggling to believe that, yes, I know you, I know you're good, I know you love me, I know you're all powerful, I know you care about my family members, but Lord, I'm struggling to really believe that you're going to do something. What is that for you today? And we're going to end with just one final song, and as we end with this song, the song is essentially says, we're waiting here for you. And that's not a waiting here for you, God, as if, okay, I'm waiting, show up. It's actually a posture of saying, we believe, but we need you to help us in our unbelief. God, we're going to wait. Because ultimately, we know that you are who you say you are. And the song is actually a song of praise, not a song of begging and saying, wait, we're waiting it's a song of saying, God, we're waiting because we believe you. And this morning, you might be waiting. And you might be saying, God, help me. I believe, but I need, I don't really believe. I want you to help me with my unbelief. And so as we end and respond in this last song, I just want to invite you to take a moment where you are, maybe a prayer to God. Maybe there's those areas of your life where you're saying, I need to grow in my faith. I need to grow in my belief in this area, God. So would you show up? Help me in my unbelief in this area. And just take a moment to pray. Right there, just you and God. Maybe for you, it's, Lord, I've been struggling my whole life, and I, I, I don't know if you love me. I don't know if you can deal with me. I keep stumbling. I keep sinning. I'm just a mess. I need you to show up. Tomorrow morning you might not wake up and, and be perfect, but you have God who's entering in with you. So what is it that you need to say, God, help me with my unbelief this morning? And then when you're ready, I want you to just, wherever you are, just join in with worship for you, if that's standing, if that's raising your hands, if that's kneeling, if it's just sitting there quietly, that's okay. This is your time now. As we respond to God with worship, because we want to be people who worship who He says He is and trust in who He says He is this morning. God, we thank you for this time. I thank you that 
though we have very imperfect faith, and there are times when we make a mess of things, and there's times when we don't trust, and when we can't wait, and when we run ahead of you, and there's times when we don't really believe your promises, we don't really believe your character, and all kinds of things, Lord, we're here not standing before you perfected, we stand before you in process. And so, God, we pray this morning right now that you would meet us here and help us in our unbelief. God, we give you this time now, and I ask that you would move in the hearts of every single one of us where we need it this morning.